whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Hi, Kieran. Thank you for inviting me. I am Javi Carell. I'm a professor of philosophy and I work on philosophy of medicine, uh, in particular on the experience of illness. I also work on death, did some work in the past on film and philosophy, and I'm generally interested in what you might call 20th century European philosophy, broadly construed. So uh, my inspiration is Iris Murdoch, and I'm about to ask you an Iris Murdoch-inspired question, but I'm wondering, has Iris Murdoch, and she sort of engaged with continental philosophy, at least with Sartre and uh, Simone Weil in a serious way, does she have a kind of presence in the kind of work on the sort of European tradition that you do? Or is she is she sort of not, not really a figure? Uh, not so much, I would say. Um, so the, the philosophers I primarily, you know, use in my in my work or whose work I was influenced by are Martin Heidegger, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, and I guess to, to a lesser extent, some other uh, French philosophers. But I, I, I don't think she, she, had a big uh, overlap with any of the the big themes that they've uh, they've looked at. Despite that, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a, a question she inspired, uh, and it comes from a quote: "To do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth." So, would you say your temperament influences your philosophy, and if so, how? So that's a really interesting question, and I think I. Um... I started thinking about temperament and very quickly found myself thinking about vices. <clears throat> I think vices influence our work in a, in a lot of ways, certainly my my philosophy. When I think about the experience of illness, I think about fear and I think about sometimes cowardice, I suppose, people have in engaging with illness, in uh, beating around the bush, in not asking, not inquiring, not engaging with people's illness experiences. Uh, and that's a very painful thing for people who are who are ill, who feel that that experience is somehow shameful, that that experience sh- somehow shouldn't be talked about. And I think in recent years in philosophy, we've really moved away from the sense that there are taboo subjects, if you like. Especially, I think, philosophies of and about the body have been somewhat... I guess, in in the shadow or in the margins of a lot of mainstream Anglophone philosophy. And that seems to me to be changing a little bit with, I guess, feminist philosophy, philosophy of race and other other kind of contemporary engaged philosophical engagements with the body. But I would certainly say that I think, sadly, um, I always experience myself as very lazy. And I I think that (laughs) makes you quite hard on yourself and, and and quite disappointed in whatever you've produced at the end of the day. So, you know, in your writing, you somehow sometimes end up feeling that you're sort of 
knocking out words, and those words are often not to the standard that you want them to be. And then there is this inevitable, I guess, clash between your 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 lazy side and your maybe maybe the side that wants to get things right. And for me, that's a, that's that's always a constant struggle to go back to a paragraph and see and see it and think, oh, it doesn't quite express what I wanted to say. It isn't quite clear enough. It isn't quite punchy enough. And then you go back and rewrite and rewrite. And I'm sure this is a familiar pattern for a lot of people. But I think for me, the practice of philosophy is often imbued with a lot of sadness about not being a more virtuous person, suffering from inertia. And I, I guess you need courage to forge new concepts and to work out new ways of dealing with the particular issues or problems you're engaging with. So I always end up feeling disappointed with, I guess, both my temperament and the the, the work I, I produce. But I'm somehow guessing I'm not alone in that. Well, I want to ask a follow-up question, but I'm going to do it by way of the second official question, which I think may connect with your shift towards the philosophy of illness. So question two is, has philosophy ever helped you with a, a practical or emotional difficulty in your life? Certainly. I was astonished, actually, at how much it managed to help me. And I was even more astonished to see how little at the time was, was written on exactly this, this issue. So, so, so here's the issue. I got sick with a very rare lung condition called uh, lymphangiolyomyomatosis, or LAM for short. And I was diagnosed, and my first instinct, possibly naively, foolishly, was to to say, well, well, what do philosophers say about illness? And I went and kind of had a look at some work in philosophy of medicine, which was mostly around concepts of health, illness, and disease, feeling that that was not was I was what I was after. What I was after was a sort of guide, if you like, or shepherding, or or even just a description of what happens to a life when it goes awry to the extent that mine did after a diagnosis of a, a serious life-limiting illness. So I thought, heck, I need, to, I, I, need to, I need to write this because I was in a place of such terrible sadness and difficulty and loneliness, incredible loneliness, because it was a rare condition and there was only a handful of patients diagnosed at the time in the UK where I was living. And it was very hard to find somebody who could share this experience of the kind of lightning bolt changing your life. You know, I went into the doctor's office and came out half an hour, an hour later, feeling that my life was destroyed. And I was, I was young at, at, at the time. I was, I was 35. And I thought, that's it. It's, it's, it's all been taken away from me. All my expectations and dreams, which again, at the time were very, very tacit, right? Because we all think, oh, I'm, I'm going to die when I'm really old. And all of a sudden, somebody says to you, oh, no, actually, you're going to die in the space of a few months or a few years. Y you feel cheated out of some, again, some tacit deal we all think we have with life, which we don't. So it was, it was, a, it was a terrible, terrible crisis. And I think I went back to phenomenology, which I was working on already, and I thought, well, how do all these concepts, how is all this going to apply when you look at the case of bodily breakdown or illness? And the, the shift from a sense of bodily trust, bodily confidence, bodily 
security, even if you like, that we all walk around with all the time. And I haven't had it for a very, very long time. And I can think back on the days before I was sick to thinking, and I, I now in hindsight, it looks like a very, such a special thing about life that you can just get on an airplane and go somewhere for a holiday or that you can go and see friends in another city or that you can just walk to the shops or go anywhere you want without worrying about oxygen and how are you going to get back and is it going to be too much and will you run out of oxygen? And so that just this sense that I only realized the freedom I had once it was taken away from me just really upset me. And I thought, why don't philosophers talk about this stuff? Why don't they talk about the way in which a life is demolished and then rebuilt in the context of, of, a, of a serious diagnosis? Why don't they write about what happens to your body as you age, as you become ill, the disabled body? And again, this was a good 15 years ago. Now it's much more mainstream, if you like. There's much more awareness of this. But at the time, it was just, it was almost off limits. Uh, nobody wanted to think of these things as even appropriate for a philosophical discussion. So it helped me personally a lot because I just threw myself into this new project thinking, hey, you know, what what, what better thing for a philosopher than to discover a sort of a lacuna, a gap that's need, needing to be filled in, in the philosophical uh, landscape. I just jumped in there and uh, it kept me very, very busy for a long time. And I guess to be honest on, a, on an emotional level, I also felt like I was gaining back control and kind of ordering an experience that was very confusing and very upsetting and very tumultuous because my diagnosis was very sudden and I was already very sick and there was no treatment for my disease at the time. And everything was looking like a, you know, a, a double, triple, quadruple whammy. Everything was not just going wrong, just going very, very wrong. So I think philosophy, again, is, is a form of, I don't know, I keep thinking of this word shepherding. It's, it's a way of helping you or, or showing you how you can make sense of things, not in the, on the merely individual level, but really much more broadly on a kind of conceptual philosophical level. Say, so, okay, so if you're a Stoic, this is how you would go about this. And if you're an Epicurean, this is how you would go about this. And if you're an existentialist philosopher, this is how you would you would go about this. And then you think, okay, now I've got all these options. I've got this menu of approaches, of ways of thinking about hardship, adversity, illness, disease, disaster, trauma, and so on. And you can, you can start kind of making a bit of order in it. So, so it was, it was incredibly useful, helpful, practically and emotionally for me in a way that when I got a chance to then write all of this down in a in a book form, people then wrote back and said, oh yeah, this is this is really useful. And that was my real hope that I would send this book out into the world and it would it would reach people who would otherwise feel, you know, isolated and lonely and like they're the only people this has happened to. And also looking for ways of of reordering their life or or making sense of their experiences in a way that I think phenomenology can really help to do. Well, I can say from my own life that it has been very helpful. And also from the life of my mother-in-law, who was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, I think the year the book came out, and I gave her a copy, and she really did find it extremely helpful. I have questions to follow up with that are philosophical, but I also think there's a sort of more immediate question, which is, you are still alive, you're still with us. 
how has your health been? What has happened since you were diagnosed? Well, it's uh, one of those kind of amazing stories that we we find all the time in 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 medicine. So, so at the time of my diagnosis, two thousand and six, I was diagnosed, and on the, with my diagnosis, I was also giving the following information: there is no treatment for what you've got, and the survival of of this is is up to ten years. And I was I was really I was just speechless. I I was not just speechless. I was thoughtless. I couldn't think and I couldn't talk and I couldn't do anything. I was just consumed by this, what felt at the time like a death sentence. Then, you know, once we started doing a little bit more research, so I was, I was terrified. I wouldn't even go near the internet for, for, for a good few weeks after that. But there, there were kind of trickles of information about a particular drug that has been used off-label with, uh, with my condition, with LAM. And my physician at the time said, well, you know, it's, it's worth a shot because your only other option is to have a lung transplant. So you're going within the space of a few weeks from just going about your business and maybe feeling a little bit breathless to getting all this information that you're going to be dead within 10 years, you're going to need a transplant assessment, which is, which is a pretty gory affair. I mean, going through a lung transplant, when you start researching it, it's, it's not an easy thing. And then there's this possibility of, of the drug treatment. So he said, do you want to try it? We don't know that it's necessarily going to work. We haven't done a randomized control trial on a bigger population of patients. This is based on the basic science, on our understanding of how the disease mechanism works. And I thought, yeah, I'll try it. Okay. And I was very, very lucky because 30% of patients don't respond to the treatment. 30% get better in the sense that their lung function improves. And 30%, which I was the group I'm in, stay stable. And I know stable for somebody whose lungs have been ravaged by this disease doesn't sound like a lot. But stable is is a lot. Stable means you can slow down and you can resume normal life and you can, with all the disability and the worries involved in having significantly reduced lung function, and not to mention now in the in COVID times, I was still able to to have a life. So it was uh, it was nothing short of miraculous, I think, in many respects, in that I could regain. The, the sense that death isn't just around the corner. I mean, it's it's coming, but it's not only just around the corner, I hope. Can I ask a, a more sort of abstract philosophical question about how philosophy was helpful? This is picking up on something that you said that I have been sort of puzzling over. You talked about the sort of menu of philosophical options, the stoic response or the existentialist response. And I'm not sure how to formulate this question exactly, but but a puzzle about how to think about the fact that some people find one of those helpful and others find another helpful in adversities of the kind we're talking about. And yet as a philosopher, I had been thinking, well, they're exclusive views. One of them is true at most. The others are false. So how should I think about the the open-endedness of the way in which people find philosophy helpful and how to fit that together with its truth-seeking component. That's a pretty abstract question, but do you have thoughts about that? Yes. I think the experience of illness is not a domain where you can or you even ought to look for a true 
I mean, a, a, tr a true what? You would want a true representation? I mean, the representation would only ever be of one's idiosyncratic experience. So I think attempts at generalizing, and, and, and there's a lot of work, say, in, in sociology of, of illness, the experience of breast cancer, the experience of prostate cancer, the experience of asthma. It's very hard to, to, to move away from idiosyncratic experiences to, to a kind of generalization. Uh, and of course, there are generalizations in the sense that, you know, when people are diagnosed, they feel terrible sadness. When people first become disabled, they go through a process of adaptation. There are generalizations to be had. But what was important to me was to hang on to, if you want, you can even call it a narrative, to hang on, hang on to a world picture that, that allows you to be ill with dignity, if you like, or at least that's how it felt for me. And in that case, it wasn't a matter of asking what is the true, correct response to illness. It was simply a matter of saying, when I read this guy, I feel it, it resonates with me in a, in a particular way. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. And I, so, so I don't think truth has, I don't think truth has a big role to play in the kind of situation I'm describing. So I don't, I don't know if, if that helps. I'm, I'm... Yeah, no, that was very helpful. I would love to talk more about that, but I'm conscious of the time and I'm thinking we should move on to question three, which is slightly less profound than the topics we've been exploring so far, maybe. The question is, who was your most inspiring teacher? That's a, that's a really great question. I was oh I was I was influenced by so many people. I think my PhD supervisor who who was Simon Critchley was um was incredibly influential. I mean in hindsight I now appreciate his generosity with his time. You know when you become an ap academic and you're always so stressed and you got so many things you need to kind of move on with and making making it always seem like he's not in a rush. I think was a an incredible in hindsight an incredible thing that went on in his uh, in in our supervisions. But he was he was a very nurturing supervisor. The, they were not easy years, but they were they were good years. I I read a lot of what he wrote, and it really fit with a person I knew. So it was it was a good kind of process of triangulation to see how somebody lives how they teach and then how they write it was it was really interesting my uh, my partner samir okasha who's a philosopher of science is probably talked is the person i talked with the most about philosophy i mean he's 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 a superb philosopher he's a superb person to talk with about everything philosophy included um and then the third person i would mention is he was not my teacher he's actually a lot younger than me but he's uh He's a, a contemporary philosopher who's, uh, who's called Ian James Kidd, in, based in Nottingham. And we've kind of struck up a, a really wonderful collaboration that started with some work we did on epistemic injustice and illness and then, and then kind of blossomed into a, I think, uh, I think it's been seven years now since we've started collaborating. And I think talking to people, writing with people, reading people, it, it just remains such a such a fundamentally rewarding and 
inspiring and wonderful thing to do that I, I, um, I, I, I could go on. <laughs> There's so many people I, I've had amazing philosophical exchanges of various sorts with. Yeah, no, t- philosophical conversation is clearly such an important part of the pleasure of being a philosopher when it goes well. But having talked about the joys of philosophy, I'm going to turn us away from philosophy for question four and ask, if you weren't a philosopher, what would you do? So um, that's a question I asked myself a lot when I just was about to finish my PhD. What, what, what's my plan B? And my plan B was to train as a psychotherapist and and be- become a, a psychotherapist. I was very, very interested at the time in psychoanalysis. I wrote my PhD on the concept of death in Heidegger and Freud. And that stayed with me as a as a, a, as an alternative career I think I would have I would have liked. And my plan C was to go into publishing, but I never got to try out either B or C. <laughs> so I don't know how either of these would have panned out, but I think there are certainly Talking with people in the kind of psychotherapeutic intense context would have been something I'd have enjoyed a lot too. I mean, do you feel like the kind of philosophical work you've ended up doing scratches the same itch? In some ways, hmm, in some ways, yes, but only in the slightly basic sense that when you scratch a philosophical itch, you do that in order to also scratch another itch, which is something to do with people's, you know, going back to what your first question, temperament, people's curiosities, people's natural inclinations, people's need to order the world in particular ways using particular sets of concepts. So yes, I've, I've always enjoyed looking at people and wondering why they work on what they work on. And there's usually a really, really good answer to that question. You just have to know the person well enough, usually, to find out. Well, that leads us very smoothly into question five, the final question, also an Iris Murdoch question, beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? It's a pretty easy one for me because it's been a theme spanning my entire life. A bit unsurprising, but my biggest... My biggest or my 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 strongest kind of accompanying fear is of not just death, but of something really bad happening, bang in the middle of the day. So every time the phone rings, there's a part of me thinking, who died? Who's had a stroke? What happened? And every time I pick up my my kids from somewhere and they're there, I think, oh, they're there, they're still alive. It's it's a little bit it's a little bit of a theme in that I remember as a quite a young child lying there in bed and thinking, so I would lie here and I would fall asleep and I would never, ever wake up. And what would that be like for other people? What? How can I conceptualize? How can I get to that limit point where it all stops? And I, and I still think that's something I'm very much... <sighs> attuned to or directed towards in in just in ev- in everyday in everyday life in a slightly pathological way so i think it is not a coincidence i chose to write my phd thesis on the concept of death and i'd still think it's a an incredibly rich area to be to be mining but i think more recently i've started 
thinking about death as something that for many people it symbolizes a bigger way in which life can just get frayed or or fall into complete disarray very very quickly and again i think the pandemic is you know i think a lot of us have had experiences that made that much more salient to us the way in which adversity is always there at the as a sort of kernel if you like or or a fact of life as me and ian called it in a recent paper the facts of life that we are prone to affliction that we are vulnerable that it can all fall apart at any given moment, either on an individual basis or, you know, as we're seeing now on a, on a global basis. And that, that's, that's always there. And that's, for me, something that I think we, we need to pay more attention to, not just because we worry about it and are afraid of it, but because it's, it's a place where a lot of philosophical production can, can happen, I think. Well, yeah, I really resonate to that, even to the specific experience of lying in bed as a child. I remember being afraid to fall asleep in case I never woke up, in case I was clinging to the last thread of consciousness. And it's really been quite surprising to me in doing these podcasts and asking now 20 or 30 philosophers, what are you afraid of? How few mention death. I had assumed it was going to be the go-to answer for philosophers, but it turns out not to be, and I'm not really sure what to make of that. It's been really wonderful to talk to you and great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Javi Carell is a professor of philosophy at the University of Bristol and the author of Illness, The Cry of the Flesh, and Phenomenology of Illness. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. <laughs>